There was a young girl whose name was Maria, and she broke up with her boyfriend, Jimmy. She said that she simply didn't want to be with him anymore. But after a year, she wrote him a letter, and she told him that she missed him and that she couldn't stop thinking about him. Night and day, she couldn't get him off of her mind and that she didn't want to be apart from him anymore. And so she asked if they could reconnect, and then she signed the letter. And at the bottom, she wrote, P.S., Congratulations on winning the lottery. (laughs) But isn't it amazing how people use people for their own goods? Oftentimes, when someone has an interest in someone's life, it isn't about the person that they're seeking interest in, but rather it's what is in it for them or what they're going to get out of that relationship. The thing I love about the Lord is that he is never that way is that when God saves a person, his primary interest in doing that is the person. His immediate motivation is what he's going to do in and for that person. And that way down the list somewhere, if at all, he may or may not have something on there concerning what he might want to do with that person. But that's way secondary. His priority is always what he's willing to do or wanting to do for that person or in that person's life. Now, God consistently demonstrates this in the scriptures, that he never prostitutes a life. That is, uses it for his own purposes without regard for the person that he's using. And thus the preparation that we see as we look at the characters of scripture as we've gone throughout The preparation, the lessons, the sufferings, the trials, the struggles, the battles, all of those serve the purpose of equipping the person with the gifts, the strengths, the wisdom, and the nature necessary to, first of all and foremost, live an abundant life in close fellowship with God. That's the primary reason for the things that God takes us through and does within our lives. It's to equip us to live the most abundant life we can and to be close to him in the process. And secondarily, those trials and struggles and fights and battles that we go through serve to prepare us to succeed and to prosper in the thing that God made us for. That's secondarily, but he does it. Now, in the last chapter, chapter 17, we saw the preparation of Elijah the prophet. We saw that he was tested, he was refined, and he was humbled. The faith that he had was stretched and turned into an even greater faith, which will paramount to what comes next. His obedience allowed him to see the hand of God in a way that will give him a concrete confidence for his walk with God in the future. And his patience, as God had him wait for year after year, As he was stretching and humbling him, his patience allowed God to do all that was necessary to thoroughly equip him for what would be in his future. But in all of that preparation that we saw in Elijah, it made him not just a part of the divine work of God, but a partaker in the divine nature of God. That is, that he was brought near not just because of the gifts of of God, but because of the giver himself. He became a partaker of God's nature. And that's what God always wants with us. Not just to use us and to equip us for our service, but to equip us to be close to him and to maintain that walk with him. And then our service can be an overflow. And thus, the long preparation of Elijah for what will come next in his life. Now, as we come to chapter 18, we come to that greatest work in Elijah's life. So notice with me in chapter 18 in verse 1. It says, And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go and show yourself now unto Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. And Elijah went to show himself unto Ahab, and there was a sore famine in Samaria. You recall from our study last week that because of the rebellion of King Ahab and the following rebellion of the people of Israel who followed in his ways, God ordered Elijah to go to Ahab and say that there will not be rain or dew in this land until I say so. 
And then he disappeared out of the presence of Ahab. And we followed Elijah through that time. We saw the brook dry up. We heard about the famine that was going on even in up in uh, you know the, the area of Zidon where the, the woman was from Zarephath. You know. We saw that famine that it was sore. And now we find in the third year, according to Jesus, this is three and a half years now since the famine began. Now God is sending Elijah back to Ahab because God has ordered an ending of the famine, a culmination of the discipline or the chastisement that God has brought upon uh, the people. And so he sent. And then it says um, in in verse 3, it says in Ahab now. So we shift over to where Ahab the king is. He called Obadiah. Now, Obadiah is a man who is the right-hand man of Ahab. It tells us there that he is the governor of his house. Now, there are some Bible scholars that believe that this is the same Obadiah that wrote the book of Obadiah that we have in the Minor Prophets a little bit further on in the Old Testament. There are some that say it's different, and we don't really know the answer for sure because the Bible doesn't tell us. There were many Obadiahs. It was a popular name, but what we do know about this man, Obadiah, is that he was a good man. But notice what it says. It says that he was the governor of his house, the house of Ahab, who was a wicked and evil king. Now, some have faulted Obadiah for this thing. Why is it that a godly man can be in the administration of a wicked king? How is it that someone who is righteous can justify partnering with, even to the place of being right there at the top, the right-hand man of someone who's so wicked. And my answer to that is this, is that throughout all of history, God has placed his people in the center of wicked situations so that he can be an influence and a voice in an otherwise completely godless society. I think of Joseph, who was one of the greatest saints of Old Testament history. And God placed him right as the right-hand man of Pharaoh, the most wicked man in all of that season of God's history. And yet Joseph was there because he was to be an influence and a light. And through it, being a type of Christ, he saved the known world at the time. I think of Daniel, who as a young man was carried off to Babylon. And he decided as a a young man at a young age that he was going to honor God with his decisions. He wasn't going to defile himself with his portion of the king's wine or the king's delicacies. He wanted to be obedient to God and bring glory to him. And so God elevated Daniel, and he became the right-hand man of King Nebuchadnezzar, again, the most wicked man of his time. And Daniel endured not just through the days of Nebuchadnezzar, but through three administrations in Babylon, the wicked place, because God wanted his people in a place of influence in a wicked nation, a wicked society. In the New Testament, we read of the Apostle Paul. And often we read of the companions that he had as he would go from city to city and lead people to Christ. And in Philippians, when he wrote the letter to the Philippians, he said, give a special greeting to those who are of the household of Caesar. That is, those Christians that are servants or employees in the administration of Caesar, who was the most wicked emperor that Rome ever had. The point is that God strategically places his people in places of wickedness in order that they might be a light. And I see that here in the life of this man, Obadiah. And we're going to see God use that uh, in his life as he um, progresses. There's three characteristics that are given to us about this man, Obadiah, in these next few verses that prove that he was indeed a very godly man. First of all, we're told that he feared the Lord. Notice with me, at the end of the verse, it says, Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. I believe that this is one of the most important, yet sadly one of the most lacking characteristics of a godly person. Someone who fears the Lord. Now, it's important that I define what the fear of the Lord actually is. Because that word fear can take on many different definitions or have multidimensional imagery that flashes in our mind when we think of it. The fear of God literally is the reverence and awe, a sober acknowledgement of who he is. It's not an anxious, tormentuous type of fear that you would have like watching a horror movie or seeing someone come at you with an axe or a shotgun. You know, not that kind of fear where you're afraid of a person. 
but rather it's a reverence of understanding who it is that you're dealing with and having an acknowledgement of his power and his authority. Now, there are many people of God that are very strong in their understanding of the love of God, another one of God's uh, great characteristics that we're to be strong in. God's love speaks to his nature. It's how he is, and we take great comfort in the love of God. Many of us are strong in that attribute of our Christianity. However, the fear of God speaks to his authority, who he is, that he is God. And it doesn't comfort us so much, more so it confronts us because it forces us to acknowledge that he is God, that he's almighty, that he's sovereign, that he's powerful, and that he's all-seeing. And therefore, all things are naked and open before him. And therefore, what we do and how we live makes a difference because he is, in fact, God, and he tells us what he expects of us. And it's important that we not just center on the love of God and become weak in our fear of God because we'll go out of balance. I think of John the Apostle. You know, the Bible talks about him as the one who leaned upon Jesus' breast. He calls himself throughout the gospel the apostle that Jesus loved. And he was more aware of Jesus' personal love for him than any other one of the disciples, calling himself so boldly by that title. I'm the one that Jesus loved. But yet the same one who leaned his head upon the breast of Jesus at the Last Supper also fell at his feet as dead when he saw him in glory in Revelation chapter 1. See, he was grounded in the love of God and he was secure in the fact that God loved him. But he also was willing to come face to face with the fact that he is God, that his head and his hairs are white as wool. His eyes burn like, a, like as, as though a flame of fire. His feet are hot with fine brass, ready to stomp out and mete out judgment. And he recognized that it's not just the love of God that keeps me on the narrow path, but rather I must also be one who fears God. And to embrace the love of God and to ignore or fail to fear God means that you're going to ultimately give yourself to a place where you allow your flesh to live. And that will remove you from being able to experience the love of God. To live in the love of God that's not tempered by the fear of God will cause bad things to happen. It will be bad for you personally. You'll do things that are bad for yourself. You'll do things that will damage God's reputation. And it will damage uh, those who are watching you trying to get an example of what it means to follow God. It was a lack of fear in God that caused David to sin with Bathsheba. It was a lack of fear in God that caused Solomon to turn his eyes away from the Lord and to bring rebellion upon the nation. It was a lack of the fear of God that caused Ananias and Sapphira to breed hypocrisy in the early church and ultimately lose their lives. In every instance in Scripture where you see good people doing bad things, the reason is because somewhere along the line they lost sight of the fact that God is to be feared. And the reason why our country is in the state that it's in and the reason why our churches are often in the state that they are in is because we as a people have left off the fear of God and it must be restored. Well, how do you maintain or regain the fear of God within your life? Well, for me, I think that the number one way that I experience the fear of God or am reminded of his awesomeness is in worship. It's when I settle my heart. I'm not saying necessarily in a song service when we sing together collectively as a church. When I settle my heart quietly before the Lord and I begin to ponder who he is and I begin to remember his greatness and how awesome he is, and the grandeur of his kingdom, and the history of what he's done in the world, and the future, and what's to come. And I allow his size and his enormity to again permeate my being. It brings me again into a place of fearing him. Not absent of his love, but in complement to his love. I'm not afraid of him wanting to run away. I'm wanting to stay very close, and I don't want to do something that's going to grieve his name. I also turn to the word of God, and I look at the passages that display his greatness. The things that he did to Pharaoh and to Nebuchadnezzar. The thing that happened to Solomon, who was the greatest man that ever lived, but he became nothing because the greatness of God was that much more. I look at the scenes that the Bible gives us of what it's like before the throne of God. The seraphim with six wings. With two, they cover their faces and two, they cover their bodies because they don't dare distract from the beauty of him that's on the throne. I read about the pillars of the temple that shake at the voice of the angel that cries, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
When I consider those scenes and look at those passages of Scripture, it renews in my heart and in my mind a holy fear of who God is. And when we walk in the fear of God, we walk in a place of safety and we walk in a place where we can experience His love in its fullest. And if we don't maintain the fear of God, we fall to the wayside. Obadiah was a man who feared the Lord. Second of all, he was a man who was a preserver of truth. Notice with me in verse 4. It says, For it was so that when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah took a hundred prophets, and he hid them by fifty in a cave, and he fed them with bread and water. Now you'll recall that Jezebel was the wife of Ahab, and she was the most wicked influence that Israel had ever seen. She brought paganism to a new level, and we're going to see wickedness in her that just makes Madonna look like a saint. I mean, this woman was just absolutely sick, this woman Jezebel. And she was so incensed and hating towards God that she went on a campaign to kill all of the prophets of God. And that's when Obadiah stepped in and risked his life to hide 100 prophets, 50 in one cave and 50 in another. Now, the Old Testament prophets were the equivalent of New Testament pastors. They were not necessarily Levites. The Levites were the priests. They were the ones that would offer for the people. They had the right to go into the temple before God and slay the sacrifices and offer to God in that way. Those were the priests. But the prophets could be anyone. God's spirit would come upon someone and that prophet would be the voice of God to the nation and also the voice of the nation back to God, but in a different office than the priest. The New Testament has no equivalent to the priesthood. There's only one priest in the New Testament, and that's Jesus Christ himself. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says that there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. The mediator is the priest. And that's the only priest that heaven recognizes is the priesthood or the mediation, the offering, the sacrifice of Jesus. There is no more priesthood. But in the New Testament, we have pastors. Not every pastor is a prophet, but the Old Testament prophet is the equivalent of a New Testament pastor. Do you get it? So what he's doing here by hiding 50 prophets in a cave, 100 prophets total, is that he's preserving the voice of God to the nation. Jezebel is seeking to put it out, but he's seeking to preserve the voice of truth in Israel. So to preserve the prophets is to preserve the voice of God in a God-hostile environment. Now, how do we do that? How do we follow the example of Obadiah in our day? Because we don't have a Jezebel who's seeking to literally slay people that preach and teach and speak God's word. So how can we be those that preserve truth in our day? Well, first of all, hide it in the secret chambers of your heart. Hide the word of God in your life in a way where you see the world and you see life through the lens of Scripture. That God's word is living in you and you become a living, breathing testimony of God's truth within the world. And then second of all, let it out when necessary. That it can have its effect in your world. And that leads us to the third thing about Obadiah. Uh, that makes him a very godly man in Scripture, and that was that he was an agent of change. Notice in verse 5. It says that Ahab said to Obadiah. So Ahab now turns to Obadiah, his governor, his right hand, and he says, Go into the land, unto all fountains of water, and unto all brooks. Perhaps we may find grass to save the horses and the mules alive, that we lose not all the beasts. So evidently at this time, the famine had gotten so bad that the animals, the livestock, were beginning to die off. There were no more pasture lands. There was no place left to import uh, grain or hay from to feed the animals. And so he sends him throughout the land. Ahab takes half and Obadiah takes the other half. And they go in search of food for the animals so that they don't die. It's interesting to me that Ahab is looking for relief from the famine without repentance. See, he already knows the reason that the famine has come. He's been told by Elijah the prophet in the last chapter that the reason why we're experiencing this famine is because of your sin in troubling the house of Israel. And yet he doesn't want to repent of his sin and get right with God that the famine could end and they have all the grain and grass that they need. 
Or rather, he'll search high and low throughout the land to see if there's any other way that he can alleviate the symptoms without killing the disease. He wants relief without repentance. I'm amazed at how many people there are like that in our world and even in the church. They go through a famine. They go through some some issue in their lives, somewhere God is dealing with them, and they know deep down what it is and why God's doing what he's doing. But they refuse to repent. They'll search high and low. They'll make every excuse. They'll look at every area of their life, but they won't address the one thing that they know. If I just address this thing that God's putting his finger on, everything will change, and it will change. Ahab, not willing to do that. Well, it says, so they divided the land between them and to pass throughout it. Ahab went one way by himself, and Obadiah went another way by himself. And as Obadiah was in the way, behold, Elijah met him. And he knew him, and he fell on his face, and he said, Art thou that, my lord, Elijah? And he answered him, I am. Go, tell thy lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, What have I sinned that you would deliver thy servant into the hand of Ahab to slay me? As the Lord thy God liveth, there is no nation or kingdom whither my Lord hath not sent to seek thee. And when they said he is not there, he took an oath of them. He made them promise those kingdoms, those nations, that that they didn't find you. And now you say, go tell thy Lord, behold, Elijah's here. He's been looking for you for years. And now I'm just supposed to go. I've been with him every day and say, oh, by the way, we found Elijah. He's like, no way. Because here's what's going to happen. Verse 12. It will come to pass as soon as I am gone from you that the spirit of the Lord will carry you whither I know not. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. But I, thy servant, fear the Lord from my youth. Now I pointed out last week that Elijah was a very spiritual man. Just like the Holy Spirit, the Bible says that the wind blows where it will and you don't know where it's coming from or where it goes, so is everyone who is moved or born of the Spirit. That was Elijah, and Obadiah knew it. He said, here you are right now, and you're telling me, go tell Ahab, but I know you. If you'll come with me, I'll go tell Ahab. Elijah says, no, go tell him. Now, listen to the reasoning that Obadiah has, the little argument he has with himself. I like this guy. Do you guys talk to yourselves? I talk to myself all the time. Do you ever have arguments with other people when they're not there? I don't do that as much, but, you know, (laughs) it's funny, isn't it, human beings? Well, Obadiah, just right now, he starts to have a conversation with himself right there in the field. He says, I, thy servant, fear the Lord from my youth. Was it not told my Lord what I did when Jezebel slew the prophets of the Lord, how I hid 150 men of the Lord's prophets by 50 in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And now you say, go tell thy Lord, behold, Elijah is here and he shall slay me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself unto him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. The third thing I see in this man, Obadiah, that is praiseworthy here is that he responded when he was called upon to do something that would put him at personal risk. He wasn't the one that would be the Elijah, but he was the one that would bring Ahab to Elijah, and it would come at a great risk for himself. And yet uh, he does it. Obadiah... For you and me, because we're going to leave him here, he's not going to come back on the scene throughout the rest of the story of Elijah. But Obadiah, for our application, is the picture of the Christian who's been strategically placed in the world to serve God's purposes. Some of the greatest things that have been done in God's name in this world have been done by ordinary people that have been faithful to God within their vocations to influence change. The founders and framers of our Constitution, which has caused our country to be a great platform for God's work within the world, they weren't pastors and prophets and religious workers. They were farmers and tradesmen that knew the tyranny of living in evil lands under tyrannical governments, and they put together under God and by God's direction and through much prayer a Constitution so that a land would be free and that power wouldn't be centralized. Those who led the way on the abolition of slavery, they weren't pastors except for John Newton, but really it was William Wilberforce and uh, um, 
John Adams, men who served in the political arena that brought that uh, change to pass. And it is God who in every generation uses his people within their vocations to oppose the evil of their day and to preserve truth in the world. The problem is that most people separate between their church life and their professional life, and they fail to see their occupation as the place that God has appointed them to ministry. God's desire is to use us. People say, well, God is in church, but he's not at my job. <laughs> you should see my job. If you were there, you would know that God's not there. And so I'm a Christian, I'm a, I'm a godly person in my home and in my church, but at my work, I hide it under the bushel, if you get what I'm saying, because that's not the kind of place that you want to let it out. Listen, you're not recognizing that God has placed you there for the very purpose of using you there to be an agent of truth and to bring about change in the world on the ground level. See, most sinners aren't going to come in here and hear truth. But God sends you out there so that you can bring it to them in their world where they are. And he wants to use you in that way. And Obadiah was a man who recognized the potential of being used by God in that place. And God used him. And God will use you. He wants to use you. His spirit's been made available to you. And he's given you the answers through the word of God so that you can bring truth into your world, oppose the evil of the day, and be a voice for God. You say, well, how do I do that? How do I maintain that mentality of thinking every morning when I go to the job that I'm going into the mission field? It's very simple. Follow Obadiah's example. Number one, fear God. Let the fear of God govern your life. Live according to a standard that demonstrates that you will give an account to God. It's something that they can observe then in your life and see the way you act. Second of all, preserve truth. When you hear people on the job say things that propagate lies, or desecrate truth, don't shut your mouth, but stand up for truth, for what you know. You can't do that unless it's hidden in your heart. And then number three, deliver the message. Just like Obadiah, he was called upon to speak something that was not politically correct and that wouldn't shine on him favorably, but he did it because he was called upon by God to do it, and he survived. Now, the opposite of Obadiah is Lot. You remember Lot? He was Abraham's nephew. He came out of Ur with Abraham. And the flocks of Abram and the flocks of Lot grew too much and they had to separate. And so Lot went into Sodom. God sent Lot into Sodom to be a light. He didn't go with that mentality. He said, well, this is a godless place and I better bury my candle and hide my light. And the result of that is that Lot didn't influence the society. The society influenced Lot. And if you read his story, the outcome uh, was not very good. Well, back to Elijah uh, as we leave Obadiah in verse 17. It says that it came to pass that when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou in thy father's house, and that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed Baalim, or the Baals. It's the plural of the Baals. Amazing that that's the philosophy of the godless person. Is that they look at the Christian or the man of God and they say, the problem with the world is you. You're polluting the world with this doctrine. And yet Elijah has the boldness to look Ahab in the eye and say, I'm not the one who's troubling Israel, but it's you in your father's house and that you've brought in this worship of Baalim uh, back into the land. Uh, that's the world's philosophy even to this day, that we are the great problem in the world. We experience that all the time. We look at what the world is doing. and We look at it through the lens of the word of God. We have God's spirit living inside of us. We look at the counsels and the testimonies of Scripture. We look at God's history in the world and we see what's happened in the lives of people that have lived certain ways. We've seen what's happened to societies or families that have gone a direction in violation of God's principles and God's word. And we know what happens, what the outcome of it is. And so then we, being the voice of God, even the voice of compassion, we compel people, we say to them, look, the way that you're going, what you're doing, what you're allowing and embracing, it's detrimental to you. It's going to take you down. And then what happens is that they 
are troubled about what they're doing as they're told that things are not okay in the way that they're behaving or the way that they're going. And they blame us for causing that anxiety within them or raising that flag of maybe you should think about what you're doing. It's your fault now that I don't have peace because everything was just fine until you came in and you said you shouldn't do things this way. And they blame us for it. But really, we know what the outcome is going to be ultimately in the end. It's, you know, they, they say that it's our fault because of it. That was me before I was saved. I remember being you know, an unsaved late teenage genius because all late teenagers are geniuses. I mean, you are so smart when you're 18 years old. And then I think something happens that you just it, you begin to go downhill from there. But when I was a genius, when I was 18, I remember saying constantly that I think my philosophy is that the world should work like this, that everyone should just be allowed to believe what they want and do what they want, and no one else should push their views on them and tell them that they shouldn't do things or you know, that they should live a certain way, but everyone should just be allowed to do what they want and no one else should interfere. And thinking myself through that lens, I'm a good person, I don't hurt anybody with the things that I do. And so therefore, I just want to do what I want and leave me alone, Mr. Christian. That was my, uh, my mentality, truly. Then I went with a friend of mine on tour with a band uh, for one week. At the end of the summer, it was the closeout of their summer tour. And we started uh, in central Pennsylvania. And we followed this band all the way up into Bangor, Maine. And the grand finale of that summer tour was a three-day-long concert called The Lemon Wheel. And it was, I think, the closest thing to Woodstock that could happen in, you know, uh, later decades, you know, from that. And they locked us into this military base. There was no police there. There was no authority. And there was 100,000 people. And for three days, they just had concert after concert after concert. And you could do whatever you wanted. You could believe whatever you wanted. You could say whatever you wanted. And there was nobody there that would tell you that you couldn't say or do the things that you wanted to do. This is what I saw. I saw people my age carrying little babies on their backs, their own offspring, shirtless, walking up and down aisles of tents, selling acid as though they were selling cotton candy at a carnival. Acid, sheets, hits, books, get it here. I mean, I'm from upstate New York, okay? That's crazy, all right? (laughs) Did I just see what I think I saw? Another hour later, I saw a 65-year-old man, big gray beard, long gray hair, riding a unicycle in the nude, (laughs) riding up and down the aisle (laughs) like a clown. I saw people walking up and down the aisles with their dogs and their sole purpose for being out walking their dogs was to find a mate, some dog to mate with their dog. Hey, is your dog? Can I, my dog? And I was there, I'm telling you, I was there for five hours and I was ready to get saved. I got saved as soon as I came home from that concert. (laughs) Because I realized, and I realized it by the grace of God. That this is where what I, my ideal of life leads to. When everyone just does whatever they think is right, and nobody says that this is right, and there's no voice of truth in the world, but everybody, you just do what you want. If that's your inclination that you think you want to do, and that your flesh is telling you to do, then you just go do that. That's the kind of world that you produce. And it's an ugly world. It was a dark three days that I was there. I was glad to leave. Troubler of Israel, he calls him. And Elijah says, no, you're the troubler of Israel because you have brought idolatry into the land where God's truth uh, is to reign. Now notice what Elijah does. He says in verse 19, now therefore send and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal, 450, and the prophets of the groves, 400, which eat at Jezebel's table. So 850 men, Elijah calls, of which only 450 will come. So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel, and he gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. 
So Ahab gathers not just the 450 prophets of Baal, but all of Israel as well. And so he gathers a great audience and he gathers the prophets. Now, Jezebel, who kept the 400 prophets of the groves, the Ashtaroths, those prophets didn't come. And that's a, a curious thing to think about. Why wouldn't Jezebel come with those prophets? Perhaps it was that she knew or had an inclination that it wouldn't be good for them. But, but anyways, verse 21, it says, So Elijah came unto all the people. And he said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him, not a word. Elijah asked them the questions. He says, how long will you halt or how long will you falter or vacillate or waffle between two opinions? On the one hand, you worship Baal. And on the other hand, you worship God. You're called by the name of God and you're vacillating between the two. You can't decide if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of God. Or if you're a follower of the Baalim or of yourself, what are you, he says, determine which God is the true God and then follow him. If Baal is God, follow him with all your heart and leave the worship of God. But if God, if the Lord is God, then leave the Baalim and serve the Lord with all your heart. Now, here's the problem uh, that they were facing. The problem was that they were taking what they liked from God. They loved the history. They loved the promises. They loved the stability that God afforded them as a nation. They loved the blessing of God that when it came, it brought great prosperity. And it made them feel legitimate to call themselves by the name of the God of Israel. But on the other hand, they liked taking, taking from Baal as well. They loved the license that it gave them to indulge their flesh. They loved the sensuality. They loved the visual nature of it. They loved the high places and the incense, the things that appealed to them in their physical realm. They loved that as well. And it afforded them the privilege of being unrestrained in their behavior. And so they would take the name of God and the behavior of Baal and they would kind of make their own religion of the two things. And what Elijah said is that you're halting between two opinions. You're making absolutely no progress in your life whatsoever because you can't decide who it is that you're to follow. You want to be right with God in the spirit and you want to feed and indulge the appetites of your flesh and you want it to be okay. But Elijah says, you figure out which is the true God and then you serve him. In our society today, it's no longer a halting or a waffling between two opinions, but rather it's become a pantheistic potluck. People take a little from this idea, a little from that Eastern thought, a little from this religion and table, a little from this tradition, a little from biblical Christianity, and they formulate and they speculate and they make their own God based upon what they think God should be or what they want God to be. The problem with that is this, is that God has told us who he is in the Bible, through his prophets, through sending his own son into this world. And he hasn't given us the right to just make and choose a God who we want uh, him to be. Now, we don't have to believe the Bible, but we have to at least be willing to acknowledge that the people that wrote it weren't guessing. That when the prophet said, the Lord spoke to me the second time, when Moses said, these be the words of God, when Jesus said, verily, verily, I say unto you, Jesus never said, thus saith the Lord, because he was the Lord. That though maybe you don't believe what they said, you have to acknowledge that they were speaking with authority as those that knew God and those that were speaking on his behalf. So many in the churches today halt between two or even ten different opinions about who God is and will not come to consensus that God has told us who he is in the word of God. Well, how do you know that God is the true God? That's exactly what Elijah is about to determine. Look at verse 22. It says, Then Elijah said unto the people, I, even I only, remain a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. So in other words, I'm on one team by myself. And you gather your 450 prophets and you're on the other team by yourselves. And let them therefore give us two bullocks and let them choose one bullock for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on wood and put no fire under it. And I will dress the other bullock and lay it on wood and put no fire under it. 
And you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God that answers by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. He says, you guys gather a bull and build yourselves an altar, and I'll gather a bull and build an altar, but put no fire under it. And you call on your God, and I'll call on our God, the God, and we'll see which God answers by bringing fire upon the altar of that sacrifice, and that God will be the true and the living God. We'll put God on trial before the nation, or rather, put the nation on trial before God. That's what's really happening. And so Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, verse 25, Choose you one bullock for yourselves and dress it first. You go first, for you are many, and you call on the name of your gods and put no fire under it. And so they took the bullock which was given to them, and they dressed it. I read that and I thought, what is this, Mardi Gras? You know, I mean, they probably did. They probably put makeup on it and, you know, beads and cufflings and all the rest. You know, no, uh, no reference here at all that there was any preparation of a sacrifice made. It says that they dressed it. And then they called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar which was made. Now they've got to get more desperate. He's not hearing. He's not answering. And so they begin leaping upon the altar. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them. And he said, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is talking. Maybe he's having a conversation. Talk louder. He can't hear you over the conversation he's having. He's on the phone. Or maybe he's pursuing. Now, that's uh, King James politeness. The word in the Hebrew actually literally means wasting. He, he's literally saying to him here, maybe he's in the bathroom. In one of the other translations, it says maybe he's covering his feet. He's, maybe he's in the bathroom. He's busy. He can't get out to you right now. Or maybe he's in a journey. Maybe he's traveling today and he's out of the office and there's no secretary there, so he's not getting back. Or, or maybe he's sleeping and he must be awake. Don't you love this? Now listen, I do not believe in being a jerk for Jesus, okay? I don't believe that we're supposed to be fools for Christ, the Bible says, but we're not supposed to be jerks for Jesus. And I don't think we're supposed to go out and obnoxiously make fun of people uh, in the world. But I have no respect for a false god and a false deity. And Elijah here seems to have no problem at all uh, making fun of, of following after pure foolishness. And so verse 28, it says that they cried aloud and they cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets until the blood gushed out upon them. Now, my, the picture in my mind of this scene is like the zombie apocalypse. I mean, I'm picturing all of these demon-possessed, crazed, Baal prophets bloodied, walking around this altar, chanting, throwing themselves on it. There's blood splattering everywhere. I mean, this is extreme what they're doing right now in their desire to just see Baal answer uh, their questions. But it says in verse 29, it says that it came to pass when midday was passed and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. So this has been going on for a full day now. That there was neither voice nor any to answer nor any that regarded this resulted on their behalf in a wasted day, wasted effort, and a wasted life. They spent a whole day giving themselves to this exercise of seeing Baal answer a single prayer. They gave an incredible amount of effort and energy and zeal and noise and dancing and leaping and cutting, all kinds of things, all kinds of energy trying to make something happen, to stir up some spiritual activity from a false god. And all that it proved when it was all over is that every moment of their life that they had spent prior to this and any moment that they will spend in the future after this is an absolute and total waste because their god can't help them. What sense is there in serving a God who is absent in your life? Who can't answer when the need arises, when things happen, when it comes. But that's exactly what they came to. They wasted. That is all that will ever come from following the wrong God. 
Now it's Elijah's turn. Watch this, verse 30. Now, I want you to notice as we read through these verses what Elijah does before he even calls upon the name of the Lord. Verse 30. It says that Elijah said unto all the people, come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. The first thing that Elijah does is that he repairs the altar of the Lord that had been broken down. The altar throughout the Old Testament speaks of the place where God meets his people. It spoke to the way that God provided for man to approach him. In order for a holy God and sinful man to come together, something must be done with the sin of man. It must be covered. And God therefore provided a way. He said, build an altar and bring a lamb. And that lamb I will accept as an offering, a substitute, a sacrifice for the sin of man. And so we see Abraham throughout his life building an altar to the Lord in a place where God would meet with him. We see it in the life of all of the servants of God all the way throughout a place where God provided. And the fact that the altar of the Lord is broken down tells us that the people had long ago forsaken the altar and that they were out of fellowship with God. But Elijah restores and rebuilds the altar of the Lord. Next, verse 31, it says, And Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. He takes 12 stones representative of the 12 tribes and even makes reference to the fact there that they are uh, the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. Remember the reference? God met with Jacob while he was there by the brook Penuel, and he began to wrestle with him. And all night long, Jacob wrestled with God. And in the morning, the angel of the Lord said, let me go for it's light, for I must go. And Jacob held on and he said, not until you bless me. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And it says that the Lord touched the sinew of his thigh and it shrank. He became one who would have to lean on a staff for the rest of his life that day. And Jesus, the Old Testament appearance of Jesus, who wrestled with Jacob, spoke to him and he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, Jacob or heel catcher, but your name shall be Israel, which means governed by God. And he would spend the rest of his life leaning upon the staff, leaning upon a cane, Hebrews tells us, symbolically leaning upon the Lord, one who would be governed by and cared for by God. And that was to be the hallmark of the nation of Israel, that they were to be governed by God submitted to his laws under his authority. And thereby, Elijah, by building this altar of 12 stones, he is symbolically saying that we are being put back or built back into that structure of being under God's authority. So he rebuilds the altar, the place of fellowship. He does it with 12 stones, the place of obedience, bringing them back to obedience to God. And then in verse 32... It says, and with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar, or a a miniature moat, if you would. He dug a trench around it, as great as would contain two seeds or two measures of seed. And he put the wood in order, and he cut the bullock in pieces and laid him upon the wood. The third thing that Elijah does is that he cuts the bull in pieces, and when he did that, The blood from that sacrifice would drip down and it would cover those 12 stones that represented the people of God. It was a symbol of the the blood of the sacrifice atoning for the sin of those people that had been torn down because of their rebellion against God uh, by the blood of the innocent sacrifice. And then... It says, uh, and then he said, the second half of verse 33, fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And then he said, do it the second time. And they did it the second time. And he said, do it the third time. And they did it the third time. So four barrels of water, three times, that's 12 barrels of water that have now been poured upon a sacrifice that's laying upon wood over a heap of stones with a trench and a moat round about it 
just before he's about to call down fire from heaven to consume him. What's the deal here with this water that he pours down? And it's the fourth thing that he does. He pours this water. First of all, don't forget that this is still in a time of sore famine or drought. Where do you get 12 barrels of water and pour them on it? (laughs) 12 barrels, it speaks of cleansing and renewal for the nation. And it was prophetic of the fact that God was about to pour out water upon a newly purified nation. Now, not to mention the fact that this is making what he's going to ask God to do scientifically impossible. Have you ever tried to light a campfire of wet wood right after a rainstorm? Has anybody ever tried to do that? I have. You can't even do it with gasoline. I mean, short of basically killing yourself with so much gasoline, I mean, wet wood just doesn't burn. And yet he dumps 12 barrels of water onto this thing, so much so that the water runs down and fills up the moat. But I think that there's a greater uh, picture that's in this, or a greater lesson, something that's greater that Elijah wanted the people to perceive. And that's this for you and I. Is that the probability of the fire coming down from God and consuming this sacrifice is scientifically just about zero. And if it's going to happen, only God can do it. And it seems to be, even in that, that there's a contradiction of the very laws of science that he made. And here's what that speaks to. The probability that God should forgive our sins is about zero. If you think about the fire of God being his answer, and that that fire is coming upon water, and you think of the great vast gulf that exists between, I mean, pure water and the hottest fire. And those two things are on the opposite ends of a spectrum, pure water and hot fire. And yet on one end of the spectrum, you have the sacrifice, which is a representative of the sin of the people. And on the other hand, you have the fire of God, which is the answer of his acceptance and their purification. And it's like, God, why would you, why would you take something so far from you and bring it near? It just doesn't make sense. And that's the picture that Elijah is painting within their minds, is that this can't even happen. There's no way fire is going to consume this altar. It's too wet. There's no way that God can restore this nation. There's no way that God can forgive this person. They've gone too far. They're they're too cold. They're too wet. It's too dark. God's light can't even come near it. And only God could do it if anyone can, but it's such a contradiction of his nature. I mean, he's holy. Man is sinful. Why would God? It just doesn't make sense at all. Well, notice what happened. It says, the water ran about the altar. It filled the trench with water. And it came to pass at the time of the evening offering that Elijah the prophet came near. And he said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am thy servant and that I have done all these things at thy word. I want you to think about that for one minute. We'll read the rest of the prayer. But he says, I want these people to know that I have done these things at thy word. In other words, God, you appointed me to do the things that I've done. What did he do? He built an altar. God appointed him to build that altar. What does that mean? It means that God wanted to forgive the people. He poured blood over the altar. It means that God made provision and God wanted to forgive them. He put wood underneath the sacrifice. Wood always spoke of the way in which God would forgive them in the coming days when his son would be bound to a wooden cross. And it's a demonstration that God was willing and wanting to forgive them, even to go to the greatest lengths. And then he put water on it and he says, God, I did this according to your will because I wanted them to see just how great the sin debt was. All of it was done according to the word of God. And he says that that they might know that I've done this according to your word. Hear me, O Lord. Hear me that thus people may know that you are the Lord and that you have turned their heart back again. Then, verse 38, the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench 
And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. That is the God that answers by fire. It's, now, what would you have done if you were there that day? I mean, that's pyrotechnician right there. I mean, that is insane to think about the amount of energy and fire that it would take. I mean, this isn't just like some like, you know, little like propane, you know, that kind of pops out of the midst of the altar. Like, oh, look at that. That's no, no, this is huge. And the whole thing is decimated. The dust, the water, the whole thing uh, is licked up. It's amazing to me to think that Elijah's prayer takes less than 15 seconds to read. Isn't that amazing? Four simple things. Reveal yourself, verify your word, let them know that you're God, and let them know that the solution to their problems is in their heart being turned back to you. God's fire fell upon the altar that day, and revival broke out upon a nation. I believe that in the days that we're living in, we are headed for one of three things. One, revival. That would be great. if the heart of the people of this land would turn back to God again. Number two is judgment. When God brings retribution for the sins of this nation as we've shook our fist and turns our backs on him. Number three would be the rapture, which would then be followed by destruction. So it's kind of one and the same. You know, the whole thing. I don't know which one it's going to be, but I believe that we're facing one of those three things very eminently. I also believe that if we're to see revival as a nation, then that will be a sovereign work of the grace of God. But I believe it will only follow these things, that the people of God, first of all, rebuild the altar. That the people of God, that you and I, that we come back to the cross, that we give heed again to the one sacrifice that ended all others, that we listen to the words of Christ as he said, take up your cross daily and follow me that we resume death to self and death to the world and to sin, that we put aside our pride and our inordinate pleasures, that we put away the forms of religion that we've raised up to put in place of God and that we return to Christ as the center of our lives. I believe it's important if we're going to see revival that his authority be resumed within our lives, that we give ourselves again to obedience to him and to be governed by him and his word. I believe it will come with the pleading of the blood of Jesus Christ. Again, letting God cover his people and it will be followed with sincere repentance. And I believe that revival will come when the people of God pray, when we give ourselves to prayer. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, If my people, which are called by my names, will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. But it's not going to happen if we're not on our knees before the Lord. Well, it says, Elijah said unto them, take the prophets of Baal and let not one of them escape. And they took them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and he slew them there. And Elijah said unto Ahab, get thee up, eat and drink. Do you notice that? Get thee up. It means Ahab fell too on his face. For there is the sound of the abundance of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he cast himself down on the earth, and he put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up, and he looked, and he said, there is nothing. And he said, go again, seven times. So Elijah goes up to the top of Mount Carmel, he hides himself, and he gets on his face before the Lord, and he begins to pray that the rain will come. And he sends his servant. He says, go look. Is there any sign of rain yet? And seven times the servant comes back and says, no sign. And seven times Elijah returns and he puts his head between his knees and he prays again for God to answer his prayer uh, of, of, uh, of asking for rain. It's amazing. When, when Elijah prayed that the, the boy would be raised from the dead in the last chapter, it says he stretched himself three times upon the body of the boy. In the last episode, he prayed a prayer that takes 15 seconds to pray, and God answered. And here he has to pray seven times. What gives? I mean, why no consistency? Why not just pray and here it happens? Here's what I believe. I believe that if God answered our prayers the same way every time, we would formulize him so quickly. We would get him so figured out that we would never seek him personally again. There's no, there's no method to it. But yet Elijah prays. Now, here's another amazing thing about this prayer as he's praying now for rain, is that he already knows that God's going to do it. God has already told him that he's going to send rain upon the earth. This is God's will. 
but yet he still prays anyway. How many in here, when you know something is God's will, you don't pray? You say, well, God already says he's going to do this. I know he's going to do it. Therefore, I don't really have to pray about this. Elijah did, and he prayed seven times fervently about something that he already knew God was going to do, and he didn't stop until he got an answer. It's a great encouragement to us uh, to continue in prayer. Don't give up praying, even if God told you already that he's going to do something. Well, it came to pass at the seventh time that he said, Behold, there arises a little cloud out of the sea like a man's hand. And he said, Go up and say unto Ahab, Prepare thy chariot and get thee down, that the rain stop thee now. Now, amazing. The servant sees a cloud the size of a man's fist. Elijah sees the hand of God. He sees, No, run. Their storm is coming. And so it came to pass in the meanwhile that the heaven was black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain, and Ahab rode, and he went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins, and he ran before Ahab, so he outruns the chariot to the entrance of Jezreel. Now, chapter 19. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Just joking. We finish at quarter after. Everybody knows we finish at quarter after. The musicians can come, but as they do. The first revival that took place in the early church took place a few days after the first outpouring of Pentecost. You read Acts chapter 2 and you see the Spirit fall upon the church. And then just two chapters later in Acts chapter 4, you see them gathered praying again and it says the Spirit fell upon them and the room shook where they were in and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. That's the first revival in the New Testament church. And it happened just a couple of days or a couple of weeks after the church first began. You say, man, they didn't even need a revival. Yes, they did. Because that's how quickly we can drift away from the Lord. When God fills and he brings us back to him, it doesn't take long for us to begin to drift again away from him. Now, I believe that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I believe that just as much as he was willing to revive them in that time, he is willing to revive us now. He has not changed. He will pour out his spirit again. The difference between that day and our day is the condition of the hearts of the people. See, in that day, the condition of the heart was one of tenderness and one of acceptance, one of yieldedness to the things of God. They were sold out for him. They were living completely for him. There was no other option. There wasn't like, well, God, if you're going to pour out your spirit, good. But if not, I've got other things to do. There was no other choice for them. It was, God, give us your spirit or we die. And I believe that when that attitude is the attitude of the church, God will do the same thing every day of our lives that we need it. He'll pour out his spirit in just the same way. What we heard tonight, I believe, are the preconditions for a revival of God to come upon a church or a community or a village or an individual life or an individual household. And they're very simple things. Fear the Lord. Stop hiding sin like he can't see it and like it doesn't matter. Number two, stop halting between two opinions. On one side, serving the Lord, but on the other side, serving whatever else fits your fancy. Number three, rebuild the altar, the altar of living sacrifice, and come back to the foot of the cross again and say, Jesus, your blood was spilled out for my sins so that I could live. And without that blood, there is no life, and there's no other life in anything other than in your name. And to fall with your life at the foot of his cross and to say again, God, I am yours, all of me. Take every part of my heart and unite it to praise your name and to serve your purposes in this world. And then number four is to plead the blood of Christ and to pray that God would have mercy upon our sins and that he would fall upon us again and use us for his glory in the time that we have. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, for the lesson that we see, that your word so timeless, so able, so powerful to change a life. And as we just sit before you here now, Lord, We pray that your spirit would put your finger on areas of our lives. Places where on one hand we pray with our mouth and we say, God, fill me again. But if we look at our hands behind our back, we're kinking the very hose through which you would pour out. And so tonight, Lord, I pray that we would be willing to lay all before you. That you would be gracious enough to us to allow us to see our need. That we might become before you naked. Every part of us laid open. We would allow you to fill us, 
Jesus, that you would be our Savior again. Jesus, that you would forgive us of our sins. That you would forgive us of having a divided heart and a divided life. That you would forgive us for serving you in certain parts and certain areas and neglecting and denying you in others. Lord, that you'd forgive us where we've left off the fear of you. Where we've allowed compromise to come in and then we've justified it. And then we've hidden ourselves. Oh Lord, we pray tonight that you would do a work, that you would refresh and revive. We pray for our children, we pray for our families, we pray for our county. Oh Lord, without you we have nothing. Without you we are nothing. And Lord, we need you. So would you come to us again, Lord? Would you restore to us the joy of our salvation? Would you bring us again back to our first love? So close, Lord, that we as John would lay upon your breast. So have your way in us, dear Lord. We declare our need. In Jesus' name. I'm going to step down from here like I do every week. But perhaps tonight the Spirit of God is moving upon your heart. You feel as though you need to respond. The front of the church is open if you just want to come and lay your life before the Lord as we close in song here. You're free. The church is open.